Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest who's no stranger to the Jew 3 Project, um, soon to be Dr. Jamar Tisby. <laughs> Welcome, uh, Jamar. How are you doing? We're going ho- to go ahead and claim that. We, we, I got many miles before I sleep, but uh, we're going to persevere and get that PhD one day. Yes. Uh, but before we start about what we're going to talk about today, just give our listeners or our viewers who, who don't know who you are just a little bit of background. Sure. My name is Jamar Tisby. I'm the president of The Witness, a Black Christian collective, which is a website you can visit at thewitnessbcc.com, thewitnessbcc.com. And I'm also the co-host of the podcast, Pass the Mic. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore Pass the Mic. We've also got a private Facebook page, so you can search for us on Facebook and then uh, be granted access there for a community of folks. We call it Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. In addition to that, I'm a PhD student in US history at the University of Mississippi, uh, working on race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century. And what we'll be talking about today, I guess I can say I'm an author. That still sounds weird to say, but uh, wrote the book, The Color of Compromise, and uh, various side hustles, as we all got to do to make ends meet. <laughs> no, well, I'm glad to have you here to talk about the color of compromise. Um, just tell our audience kind of what inspired you to write the book. The book is really a culmination of a lot of things. Uh, if I can boil it down, it would be I wrote the book because I love the church, but I hate racism. So I have been part of predominantly white institutions for a lot of my life, whether it was the college studies program in high school or being part of a 3% minority of African-Americans undergrad. And then in the church as well, Uh, I came to faith in high school through a white evangelical youth group, all great people um, instilled in me a love of the Bible. But there were only a handful of people of color and even fewer African-Americans. So I was always sort of conscious of racial dynamics. 
But then uh, going on through, it was really when I became a teacher in the Delta area that I started to think about issues of faith and justice because I was in a high poverty area. We had kids coming who uh, couldn't afford dress up day clothes. We had parents who didn't have a job or were incarcerated. Uh, we had terrible uh, health care in the area. And so I was getting all of this face to face in person through my students and their families. And I started to ask, well, what, is our, what does my faith have to do with justice? And honestly, in, in the sort of Christian traditions I was in, they, they just didn't have a whole lot. Not that they were completely silent, but it, but it wasn't as robust as I thought we needed. And then fast forward to uh, the 2010s and 2011, I start seminary and it's the same story. I'm one of a very, very small number of African-Americans. And so we start the Reformed African-American Network, what is now The Witness, and, and try to gather people who, who believe these things, um, but we're scattered about. We're out there, but we're not connected. And so that was a great experience. But I, I, I speak and I write about race and religion and justice. And things really started to come to a head in the mid-2010s. Um, there was just a slew of events from Ferguson and Mike Brown to uh, uh, the Emanuel Nine to, of course, the election. And so in February 2017, I gave, I gave a talk called The Fierce Urgency of Now. And it was, it was a distillation of everything I was thinking and feeling in, in that moment. This was just a month after the inauguration of the current president. Um, this is still in the midst of a cascade of cell phone videos showing unarmed black people getting killed. And I was frustrated. I was honestly frustrated because not only was I looking at these current events, but I was also reading history. And throughout all these books, you're, you're, you're seeing the blatant racism that this country's leaders and the, the rank and file have promoted, including church folks. And, and so I was like, we need to be doing more and we need to be doing more now. And it was out of that, that uh, the basic skeleton for this book arose. And um, you know, it, that was some of my passion. The other reason I wrote it relatedly is I love black people. And that doesn't mean I hate white people. Uh, it just means that I'm cognizant of the ways that that society devalues blackness and black people and how much we need to consciously and um, intentionally rediscover and recover the image of God in ourselves. And the fact is, racism still hurts people. Racism still kills people. And I wanted to contribute this volume hopefully as a way to start um, revealing those ugly truths about racism so that we might feel the pressure and the burden to change right now. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. We can't deal with the present until we look at the past. And a lot of people have questions about uh, when they say, well, why is there a black church? And then you have to take <laughs> them to the past. Yes. Um, and, and when you, as a historian, um, engage people that like to talk about things in present tense only, kind of what are the ways in which you have um, seen that it's been effective to take people back? Well, so, so I think we're dealing with a spiritual battle here. Um, and so at the end of the day, and I used to get very, very frustrated because I felt like 
we who advocate for racial justice, we have an airtight case. We have an airtight case historically, theologically, socially, whatever. But even in light of all of that, there were still so many people who were resistant to the uh, idea, who were defensive about it, who outright rejected it. And I came to realize that you could pile facts from the floor to the ceiling and it won't do anything if hearts are not softened to receive and hear the stories and experiences of other people to empathize and experience solidarity. So all of that is to say, there are some people who no matter what historical facts I give, no matter how I frame it, or even how sort of gentle and soft I am trying to walk them along, they just will not have it. And I say that in the introduction to the book, I said there, 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 there are some people for whom the very premise of this book is objectionable and nothing I say and no way I say it is going to please them. And I simply say to those folks, um, this book is here when you're ready because I'm not going to persuade or convince you in the words of a pages or a podcast or a blog that I do. Um, that's something God has to work on their hearts about. Now, that being said, there are plenty of people who are open to learning. Um, I interact with a lot of white Christians, a lot of white evangelicals. What I find is that the bulk of that group, especially on the younger side, you know, mid 40s and lower, they don't want to have the sort of culture war type of relationship of their forebears or their parents. But they've also been brought up in that. So they, they don't quite know uh, where to go, who to trust, what to learn from. And so I find history is really a powerful tool because these are just verifiable facts. This is stuff that happened. These are narratives and stories. And when you uncover what happens with history is the things you assumed to be natural and just sort of universally true in the atmosphere, you find out that that has been specifically shaped um, and intentionally shaped by people. And sometimes you're, just, you're, you're surprised to discover the roots of what you believe. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's that's so true. Um, when we think about your book, The Color of Compromise, if you had a starting point for compromise uh, in American Christianity, I know this is a loaded question. Sure. Um, what what are your thoughts? What is the, the starting point for you? One of the reasons I think we need to act with such urgency is there has never not been a time when racism wasn't part of American expressions of Christianity. Uh, so that's all the way from Columbus. And I, I start the first, the second chapter uh, starts in uh, the era of European discovery of North America and how Columbus from the very first moment he laid eyes on native Americans or indigenous people, he conceived of them only as servants um, suitable to serve Europeans. He conceived of them as um, empty vessels to civilize and to write uh, European civilization and even Christianity upon. So there was always this sort of looking down on people who were different. One of the events that always stands out to me is in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which was a group of Anglican white men. They passed a law saying that baptism does not free a, a, an African, a Native American, or a mixed race person. And so right there, you've got religion, race, and politics all blended into one. And what's interesting about that is the date. So this is more than 100 years before the Declaration of Independence, more than 100 years before the Constitution. So these ideas of white 
racial superiority and black inferiority, they were baked into the very culture and society even before the political entity known as the United States came about. So to trace it back, it goes all the way back. <laughs> um, uh, it's hard to say there's a starting point, but there are landmarks. 1619, 20 and odd Negroes are brought to uh, British colonial Virginia. That's not the first time people of African descent are in North America, but it's widely recognized as sort of the beginnings of what would become race-based chattel slavery. Um, there are all kinds of, of markers, even in the Constitution itself. Uh, the word slavery is never mentioned, but they do have a clause that says if a slave escapes to a free state, they can be returned to the slave state, which essentially means there's no place in the country that's safe for a person of African descent. It also means that if you are dark skinned and you're someplace where white people think you shouldn't be, doesn't matter if you're actually free or not, they can enslave you. Uh, so it's always been there is the idea. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is um, ingrained in uh, the foundation of the U.S. And that's uh, that's what I think most people don't understand in the present. That's um, they assume that, you know, going back to the MAGA hat, we got to go back to <laughs> a place um, where it was um, where we had uh ethics and morals. Yeah. Well, and, great. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. um, but there was never a time where we had that as a nation. Um, well, and so, yeah. um, and that's a fundamental issue that, that I, I, I always wrestle with is, um, you know, the foundation, founding documents talk about we the people. Uh, it talks about uh, all, pe all people being able to pursue life, liberty and happiness. And that all people was never all people, that we the people was never all the people. And so I think a lot of the impulse for change nowadays is to make those words actually inclusive and actually mean all people and everyone, black, white, young, old, able, disabled, uh, uh, immigrant, um, you know, native English speaker or not, all of those groups uh, for whom America is supposed to be this great democracy, how do we actually realize that? And that's been the impulse of the Black freedom struggle all along. Mm -hmm. What are some uh, key things in the book that you want people to walk away with? Um, what are some uh, kind of those points that you're like, I really want you to get this from chapter one. I really want you to get this from chapter one. You don't have to work through all the chapters. Yeah. But, you know. So I think number one, the structure of the book is really important. So chapter one lays out the, the kind of philosophical framework. I talk about the fact that I'm in the church and I want the church to be healthier. This is not just throwing stones at, 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 at brothers and sisters in Christ. I talk, about, um, I talk about the idea of complicity, which is going to be really tough for some people to grasp because most of the time when people in the majority think of racism, they think of hurling the N-word at people or planting dynamite at the base of a church or burning a cross. Um, that stuff happens, no doubt. There's racial terrorism and extremism, but the, the, in terms of quantity, that's still the minority of people. Most people though, they didn't do those things, but what they did do is they sort of co-signed it by their silence. Uh, they exercised complicity by cooperating with the status quo instead of resisting it. 
And that's going to be really hard for some people to hear because you, you sort of think of yourself and it's like, I've got people uh, who are friends of different races. They may even be in my family through marriage or adoption or something. You're like, how am I part of a system? And I've never done anything bad to someone of color. And I say, that's good. Like, you don't want to have malice in your heart toward different people. But at the same time, the system has been deliberately set up. What system? Politics, economics, healthcare, uh, residences, education, you name it, advantages certain groups of people, namely white people. And that didn't happen by accident. And so simply by going along with things as they were set up and intended to do, you sort of perpetuate racial divides. So this idea of complicity is, is one huge one. And, and, and it goes back to something that uh, social psychologists and, and uh, people who do race work talk about all the time. They, they talk about this spectrum. And you can be racist, you can be non-racist, or you can be anti-racist. And racist are the, the active ones, you know, the, 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 the most obvious examples, right? They're carrying tiki torches and, and calling people names, and they don't like black people and all that stuff. Um, most people are non-racist. So they're not, you know, intentionally contributing to a racist atmosphere, but simply by being passive in it, they're sort of upholding it. What we need are people to be anti-racist, to actually go against the grain. So one idea is the idea of complicity. Uh, I mentioned the structure of the book. Um, the rest of the chapters, uh, nine more chapters, lay out a historical survey from the colonial era on up to the 21st century in the era of Black Lives Matter. And what I do is just give a brief snapshot of each era and show how Christians sort of reinforced or even created a racial based, racially based caste system. And, and, and the, the idea there is, like we were saying before, there's never not been a time where this wasn't an issue, where this wasn't a problem in the church. It just looks different throughout the different decades and eras. And then I end with a, a chapter on practical steps. In that chapter, I focus on more systemic and institutional things. I think even in today's climate, most people would, would be okay with the relational aspects of reconciliation. Let's shake hands. Let's have coffee. Let's even go to church together. They might even might be okay with like interracial marriage. But those are all interpersonal things, and what they're not doing is pushing any of the systemic or institutional practices that perpetuate inequality uh, divided along racial lines. So that last chapter includes some practical steps on how to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, two things that kind of really stuck out to me when you're talking about complicity, um, because that's the question when I'm around white evangelical folks, is I didn't do anything. Yeah. Like that was, I understand the history, but that wasn't me. I didn't do anything. And so it's like, you might not have done anything, but you benefit from those who have done something. Exactly. And exactly. so um, kind of what does, what do you think repentance looks like for those who benefit, but weren't necessarily engaged in it? Yeah. You know what, I think as far as black church folk go, the door is pretty wide for reconciliation. Um, most of the folks I interact with and I myself, one of the things we're looking for is quite easy. It's just acknowledgement. It, it, it's, 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 it's an affirmation that what we're saying and what we've been through is really real. 
Now we know it's real, but oftentimes when we talk to our white brothers and sisters, because they haven't personally experienced it, they're like, no, it can't be true. They'll sort of dismiss, discount, sidestep our experience and in somehow, some way diminish that. And that's one of the most painful things of all. So whether you were personally involved or not, you can be involved in my experience simply by acknowledging that it's true, by expressing empathy um, about the pain and, and the trauma and the hurt of it all. I don't think that's asking much at all of, of uh, spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ for sure. Beyond that, we're looking for more than lip service, right? Um, you know, th there's a certain sense in which I'd almost rather pastors not preach or talk about race and racism at all, if that's all they're going to do. In other words, I don't, I don't know how much value it is to talk about racial reconciliation on, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Day or during Black History Month, if that's basically the only time it substantively comes up. Um, what I would look for, I think, I think racial justice is, is not an occasion, it's a disposition, uh, it's not a moment, it's an attitude. And so it's hard to say, do this, do that, do the other, because it's in your whole outlook where you are developing a sensitivity for racial issues and a, 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 an agility to be able to address racial issues as they come up. That only comes with experience. That comes with a commitment. That comes with making mistakes. And I think a lot of people, a lot of white people in particular, are afraid of making mistakes. I get it. Um, it it's it's it, If you make a mistake, you can really hurt people, and they can really come after you too, depending on the venue. But that's actually part of the process. So, so the the one word of encouragement I was had is your mistakes will actually build your capacity to be an ally, and you can't actually be a very good ally if you don't wade into it, make missteps, trip and stumble, get up and keep walking. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's so so helpful. Um, when you talk about practical tips, one of the main things I think about is reparations. Mm -hmm. um, us being a minority-led um, nonprofit or running both, being presidents of nonprofits that are minority-led, what can reparations look like for those in majority culture to serve um, nonprofits that are minority-led? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Number one, uh, what I say in the book is that reparations is part of that chapter on practical steps. And I say uh, reparations is the only other R word that's more controversial than calling someone racist. And I don't know why that is. If, if we actually look at it, what slavery was at its base was an exploitative economic system, which meant that literally for centuries, you had millions of people of African descent who worked without pay. And then after the nation's bloodiest war finally brought legal emancipation, they were still in effect enslaved because of poverty. Nobody ever got their 40 acre and a mule on a broad-based basis. And so you emancipated slaves and left them with nothing, which also meant that for the vast majority of black people in the rural South, they went back to picking cotton. They went back, they, they, they developed a system called sharecropping. And I live in the Delta, and I can tell you that generational poverty is real. There are black people whose families have been here 
for decades upon decades. And the only ever thing they've known is poverty because first they were sharecroppers, then they were maybe domestic workers. Maybe they had a job, but the jobs all left. And there's just nothing, there's nothing here. <laughs> um, and that's a direct result of race-based chattel slavery, which was an exploitative economic system. So here we are in 2019, and uh, the racial wealth divide is enormous. Uh, by 2082, it's predicted that that median family wealth, which is um, uh, your your debts and your assets combined, whatever you have left, uh, that 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 the net median wealth of a black family will be zero dollars by the year 2082. Should mm -hmm. we last that long? And so why is that? That's the question. You are either left with saying, well, black people are just really bad with money, <laughs> or there's something systemic, institutional, generations old that's wrong with the way things are set up. So all of that's to say, money is going to have to be part of this equation because money was behind this exploitative system. And what you bring up is great because a lot of people think that reparations, which involves money, is writing a check to some random black person. Oh, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> you know, if you can figure that out. I'm not going to say no. But what you can do, especially Christians, is support ministries like ours. We were just talking about this on social media today, where there's a difference between having a ministry that's writing about black people to white people and a ministry that is writing to or for black people specifically. And when you write or podcast or, uh, you know, video for black people, hey, not a lot of money in it. We could be connected with, you know, these larger white evangelical institutions, which for various reasons, corporate ties, uh, large churches, uh, even connections to slavery in the case of some seminaries. They got money. They got mad money. And we could be connected to that, but it, it often comes with strings attached. And so part of reparations might look like writing a check not to an individual, but to an organization whose work you trust. Um, so definitely, we need six, seven figures up in this mug that <laughs> really want to talk about uh, uh, acting urgently. Like I, that, that was part of the frustration. I don't want just the, you know, playing around the edges of racism in the church. How do we flip the tables? You know, how, how are we like Jesus in the temple and, and, and driving out the money changers, driving out the racism that's in God's house? And, and really make this a house of prayer for all people. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think is vital that we know uh, when you talk about giving money, um, there's money that we've turned down as an organization because mm -hmm. of the history of that organization. Yes. Um, and it's not that, you know, we, we, we talk about all the time, all money is not good money. And so uh, <laughs> uh, there's this aspect that, Sometimes when white organizations want to give you money, they want to put their name on it because it becomes good PR for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think organizations that have had problematic histories, one of the things they have to note is the fact that their history is problematic. And if we are called to serve those who are minorities um, in, in our community, being associated with them saves our name as well. 
Yes. So yes. their name actually undercuts me being associated with them undercuts my ability to reach the the context I'm trying to reach. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah, we've had to leave some money on the table because it's 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 too connected to whiteness, <laughs> to mm-hmm. be quite honest. Um, and 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 that's a real cost. And so mm-hmm. we've not been able as the witness to grow or travel or build the infrastructure like we might have been able to do. Um, it's something that we're not sort of like in sackcloth and ashes about. We're grateful for what the Lord has done and for the many people who have generously provided just out of the abundance of their hearts. Um, And we're grateful that by being very careful uh, with with who we get money from, we're able to be a little bit independent and be able to say what we think needs to be said, particularly about issues of race and justice. We don't want to be muzzled or muted on those topics, especially because we're trying to serve black folks. And so we need to be honest about these things. And then one other thing I'll say is there are a lot of people who resist the idea of reparations because they think it's my money. I earned it. You don't have a right to it. I certainly get that impulse. I mean, I certainly get that impulse. But if you actually think about it historically, you had a helping hand. More than likely, you had a helping hand. Um, We have people today who inherit money because they have generational wealth. Um, We have a person in the White House who inherited millions to get a start Um, and many other people in the elite class. Um, But beyond that, for the everyday people, if you just go back to World War II, not that long ago, and veterans coming home and the GI Bill or the Servicemen's Readjustment Act, as it was formerly known, Those benefits went disproportionately to white men. Those benefits included loans for homes. And this is when suburbs are cropping up. So you could buy a single family home with your white picket fence and and work um, and and buy a home. Those were those loans were not given to black people. Moreover, black people were not allowed in those neighborhoods to where the, the, the home prices actually appreciated in value. And when black people moved into a neighborhood, home values would depreciate. So even the value of the same space was undervalued because of black skin. Uh, The GI benefits included loans for uh, higher education. So that could be advanced training or that could be a college degree. That meant that you had a leg up in the workplace because you had training and skills and an education to help you get a better job. Black people did not have those advantages. In fact, the GI Bill, uh, actually some, some of FDR's New Deal uh, bonuses and benefits prior to the GI Bill explicitly excluded two categories of workers, domestic workers and agricultural workers. And guess who comprised most of the domestic workforce and most of the agri- agricultural labor force? Black people. So they couldn't even get some of the New Deal benefits. Um, and, and, and on and on it goes. And the reality is even the government through laws, policies, and practices, has subsidized the wealth that many white people currently have. Now, I'm not an economist. I'm just speaking from a historical standpoint. And the way these benefits were disbursed was not fair and equal. And so the where people are in 2019 in terms of wealth, education, job status, that didn't just come from you working hard. That came from you having certain advantages and benefits uh, from a system that was set up to serve you. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. 
And I think uh, one of the things, even with organizations that are seeking to to give money to organizations like Jude Three Project, The Witness, Build a Better Us, what whatever organization, if you're if you have problematic ties, but you still want to give, you can still give that money. Just give it as a a check that doesn't require any public uh, acknowledgement. Um, if you're committed to reparations. Now, if you want right. it to be a PR stunt, then that's a different that's thing. Different. You just want to give the money quietly and say, hey, I trust what you're doing and I want to give this to you. I don't want anything in, in return. I just want to give it to you. Don't tell anybody I gave it to you. Uh, the ways in which Jesus helped people, don't tell anybody I did this for you. Watch out. Um, yes. That could be a way uh, that you could do it. Uh, yes. And so... Um, I think that's that's helpful too. It's not like if you give it and say there's no strings attached, don't tell anybody I gave this to you. I just want to be a blessing. That's a strategy. Yeah. Um Jamar, how can folks uh what are your last words? How can people get your book and how can they get connected to you on social media? So the easiest way to get the book is go to thecolorofcompromise.com, thecolorofcompromise.com, and it'll list Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Support your local bookstores. Um, if if you have one in the area, patronize uh, patronize it. Is that right? Um, and then go to that store. And then uh, if they don't have it, they can order it. It's pretty easy to get. And so Zondervan is the publisher if they want to reach out there. Uh, the other thing you can do is I'll be on a book tour these next uh, couple of weeks. So we've got our book launch party January 25th in Chicago. January 31st, I'll be in Atlanta coming to Cincinnati and Indianapolis in February, uh, going to be in DC in March. I'll post all those dates. Follow my Facebook author page is, is where I post those events. And then, um, of course, on social media, at Jamar Tisby, at The Witness BCC, at underscore pass the mic. All of those channels will keep you up to date on uh, the latest happenings. And the last thing I want to mention is The Witness National Conference. It's going to be our very first national conference. It's October 4th and 5th in Chicago. It's uh, if you Google the Joy and Justice Conference, that's the theme. It's uh, it's it's um, commemorating 400 uh, 400 years of black joy and justice. This is the 400 year anniversary of that date in 1619, which we talked about earlier uh, in the in the show. And it's been a struggle for justice from the moment people of African descent have reached these shores. But it's not just been just been about justice and this sort of like, you know, woe is me and we got to fight for our rights and dignity. That's been it. That's been part of the struggle. But there's also been incredible joy. Um, you know, we have incredible music like by Aretha Franklin. We have incredible Art, uh, the, the costume designer for Black Panther just got nominated for an Oscar. We have um, incredible laughter. If you look at Black Twitter, it can just be a joy sometimes the way people use humor on there. So we also want to celebrate the joyous parts of what it means to be Black in America. So join Justice Conference October 4th and 5th. That's dope. Well, thank you so much, Jamar. And I hope everybody goes to get his book, The Color of Compromise, is out now. Um, so support uh, Jamar and the witness and make sure you check out uh, the conference and all the things they have going on. Um, 
And thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. Remember, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.